Welcome to Westport Road Baptist Church. We're delighted that you've joined us for today's message. Westport Road Baptist Church is located at the corner of Hurstbourne Lane and Westport Road in Louisville, Kentucky. If you have a Bible, please have it handy and prepare your hearts and minds as we enter God's Word. Let's open our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. 1 Peter 1.17 Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God, now that you have purified yourselves since obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we do thank you for this message from Peter. We pray that as we examine it, you will examine our hearts, that you will turn our eyes towards you, that you will help us to draw closer to you, that you will comfort us where we need comforting, that you will warn us and admonish us where we need admonition, and that you will draw us to be more like Christ. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In summer of 1961, the Green Bay Packers met for training camp. The previous season had ended in a disaster. They had gone to the NFL championship against the Philadelphia Eagles, and in the fourth quarter had blown a lead and had disastrously lost the game. Vince Lombardi, their head coach, stood up before them and gave one of the most memorable speeches ever given in football. He stood before all these professional football players. He held a a football in his hand, and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. The idea was he needed to go back to basics. I have to do that actually every year when I teach beginning Hebrew. I've gone through an entire semester, the fall semester, with my class, and they've learned all kinds of vocabulary and grammar, all about Hebrew. But then they take their Christmas break when the minds of students are wiped clean. And so I walk into class the first day. I say, good morning, class. Welcome back to Hebrew. Now repeat after me, Aleph, Beth, Gimel. Well, let's just do that. Repeat after me. Really, seriously, repeat after me. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet. What do you think I'm giving you? The Hebrew alphabet. We go back to the very beginning to remind them of the basics. We Christians often need to be reminded of the most fundamental and basic tenets of what Christianity and our salvation is all 
about. And in this sermon, we are reminded of one very basic fact. And if you're taking notes, this is the main point of the sermon. We are reminded of one very basic fact. God did not save you so that you can be ungodly. God did not save you so that you can be ungodly. In Christianity, there are two dangers uh, that draw us off the path to the right or to the left. They're known as legalism and antinomianism. Now, you know what a legalist is. A legalist is someone who tries to earn God's favor, earn God's uh, good opinion by keeping certain rules. Typically, a legalist will keep some rules such as keeping the Sabbath, you know, not never working on the Lord's Day, or he doesn't drink, or he has never been arrested, or he believes every word in the Bible. He has some rule, and maybe it's a good rule, but that rule is the thing whereby he justifies himself. We're all familiar with this with the Pharisees of the New Testament, the people who tithed even their mint and dill and cumin, who kept the Sabbath rigorously, who kept everything that was written in the law of Moses, but did not know God. Now, what is a legalist? A legalist is a person who is religious but not repentant. He knows God is awesome and fearful, but he hasn't really come to terms with his sin and found forgiveness. So what does he do? He finds a few rules he knows he can keep and that kind of separate him from everybody else in the world. And he says, because I keep these rules, because I keep the Sabbath, because I don't go to movies, whatever it is, I'm a righteous person. Now, we do have legalists in the modern Christian church, but really nowadays in contemporary uh, Christianity in America, that is not our main problem. More often, we go off into antinomianism. Now, that's a big word. Anti just, of course, means against. Nomian from the Greek word nomos, law. It means opposed to all law. An antinomianism is someone who believes because Jesus died for my sin, I can live any way I want. Obedience is no longer an issue. An antinomian is a person who really keeps what Paul warned against. Should we sin, that grace may abound. And such a person thinks any rules, any restraints is an attack upon the grace of God. Now, antinomianism is very, very deadly. Right now in contemporary Christianity, among practicing, church-going Christians, a major problem is pornography. Why would Christians get sucked up into pornography? Don't they know that it's wrong? 
Well, probably so, but they have so convinced themselves that their behavior is irrelevant that they get caught up in something like that. And of course, it's not just pornography. People can get caught up in all manner of sins or we just live lives of spiritual mediocrity. We are complacent about our faith because we just say, well, Jesus paid it all. What difference does it make how I live or what I do? What difference does it make if I am ungodly so long as I'm forgiven in Jesus? So again, I take you back to the main point of this message. God did not save you so that you can be ungodly. In our passage, Peter reinforces this lesson by taking us back to two very fundamental commands for the Christian life. The first command is fear God. The second command is love one another. Let's take a look at our passage. First of all, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, the NIV put in the word reverent. The word literally is just fear. Live your lives in fear, fear of God. Now, immediately we say, well, that sounds awful. I don't want to live my life in fear. And so we introduce a distinction between fear that is bad and fear that is good. Kind of reverent fear versus terrified fear. Now, the Bible doesn't strictly make that distinction, but there's kind of truth in it, as we'll get to in a moment. But notice what Peter says in this passage. You call God Father. Great. You are in the family of God. You belong to him. You are his child. He loves you. He cares for you. But it also says God who judges everyone's work impartially. In other words, no favoritism. God doesn't look upon your sin and say, that doesn't matter. God judges everyone, every human being's sin impartially. Now, that creates a problem, doesn't it? How is it that we can be saved by grace, that we call God Father, and yet we must also fear him who judges us all impartially? A little while back, I uh, was given the privilege of preaching to you, and I made the point that forgiveness of sin does not necessarily take away your remorse, your feelings of guilt, your regret about what you did, but forgiveness of sin and the grace of God makes you able to bear the regret and remorse and actually turn it into something beautiful and good. Knowing God doesn't mean you will never have pain in your life. It doesn't mean you will never suffer heartbreak from someone you love dying 
It doesn't mean you will never be diagnosed with an incurable illness. It doesn't mean you'll never lose your job. But knowing God gives you the ability to withstand the things that hit you in life and turn them into something beautiful. The same thing is true with the fear of God. The grace of God in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, enables you to take the fear of God and turn it into something beautiful, a life of righteousness, a life of peace, a life of holiness. You don't become a legalist keeping a bunch of artificial rules. You don't become an antinomian saying, well, the rules don't apply to me. You still fear God, but you're able to fear God because of God's grace. And that fear prompts you to true discipleship, to a life that is truly beautiful. Look at verse 18. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. Notice we were redeemed from an empty life. Now, for some of us, we can say, well, for sure. Some of us perhaps grew up in really bad families, really dysfunctional families, really abusive families, situations that were bad and were painful, situations filled with addiction or violence. And we can say, yeah, I came out of a really horrible background. But maybe that's not true of you. Maybe you had wonderful Christian parents who loved you and taught you and brought you up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, even so, ultimately, we have all been brought out of darkness into life. God has no grandchildren. And unless Each one of us, unless every generation turns back to God and to the fear of God, well, we're like dogs that are domesticated and we are bred. But if we're turned loose, within a few generations, we're just a bunch of wild, feral, mongrel dogs. So every one of us in every generation, no matter what our background, ultimately... We were saved from an empty manner of life. And that ought to prompt us to fear God and to want to remain in his grace. Not only that, but our redemption cost a great deal. In verse 18, we read, we were not redeemed with silver or gold, but verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect. Now, this is a metaphor of slavery. All of us were slaves. We were in a great big slave market in which the owner was sin. And God redeemed us. He bought us out of that slave market. But it wasn't something that he could buy us with silver, with gold, with any amount of money, with any amount of treasure. He had to buy us with the blood of Christ. We were redeemed at a very high cost. We were redeemed at the cost of God sending his own son to die for us. If that is the case, 
shouldn't we live our lives in gratitude? Shouldn't we live our lives in obedience? Shouldn't we live our lives in the fear of God? Hebrews 10.29 puts it like this. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? If you call yourself a Christian and if you claim that you have believed in Jesus, that you've invited Jesus into your heart, How terrible is it to trample the blood of Christ underfoot by showing no gratitude, by not persevering in the faith, by not enduring, by not holding to the fear of God and seeking sanctification. We shouldn't think we'll get away with it if we trample him underfoot and insult the spirit of grace. Verse 20 tells us, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Now notice what this text says about us. Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. Today, for those of you who are aware of these things, in the church calendar is Trinity Sunday the day in which we acknowledge that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And way, way back before the foundation of the world, God already knew that the Son would have to come to save us. That was God's plan. That was God's intention from before the beginning the eternal plan of God. And now he has become incarnate. He's not just the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Truly man and truly God in one person forever for us. That's the thing I want you to see in this verse. This plan of God that operated from before the foundation of the world, is for us. You know, we have a saying, it's not all about you. And usually that's a good saying to take to heart. The whole world doesn't revolve around you. Everything isn't for you. But in this case, it's really all about you. This plan of God, from before the foundation of the world. Mary giving birth to the baby Jesus. Jesus walking among his people, teaching and preaching and healing the sick and raising the dead and finally suffering crucifixion, dying for your sins, being raised to life. It's all about you. So once again, if God has done all this, we really ought to be grateful. But there is something more about this we should take to heart. So we hear this and we say, yay, it's all about me. 
God did all this, this eternal plan of God, and it was for me. Well, that's true. The New England Puritans, though, they had something they would constantly remind people of, and it's something really good to think about. The statement they would give it sounds a little strange to us, and it, it may kind of hard to understand at first. But the statement was, or the question, do you have an interest in Christ? And they didn't mean, are you interested in Christ? Are you curious about Christ? Do you think about Christ? They mean interest in the sense of ownership. Do you really belong to Christ? Do you really have a share in him? And the the Puritan preachers would admonish their people. By the way, the Puritans really get a bad rap. They They were really profound Christians. They weren't all a bunch of sour, unhappy people. They were very joyful people. But they would admonish their people. Don't just read the creed and say, okay, I believe in Jesus. He died for me. Yay, I'm saved. Look at your life and see if there is evidence that you have an interest in him, that you belong to him. Do you see the marks of grace in your life? Do you know that you have been convicted of your sin and have repented and turned from it? Do you see yourself being drawn to him? Do you find yourself wretched if you spend the day without him, without prayer? Do you sense yourself being sanctified day by day, becoming more and more like him? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you see any evidence of joy, of peace, of a forgiving spirit? These are the marks of grace. So yes, it's all about you. God did this huge thing for you. So that you may be saved. But make sure you have an interest in him. In verse 21, we read, Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus came for us. He died for us. But then he was raised and glorified. He went up to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. All power and authority has been given to him. By the way, again, if you're into these kind of things, today in the Christian calendar, in the Christian lectionary, the reading for today from the Gospels is the Great Commission. Great Commission, of course, is important because it's Jesus' mandate to go out to the nations and preach the gospel. Thus, it's appropriate our pastor is out on a mission trip this very Sunday. And, of course, it's the passage that tells, speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But how does the Great Commission begin? All authority has been given to me. This is the Jesus we deal with now. The Jesus who is exalted, the Jesus who is on high, the Jesus who will judge the world. 
When we read a passage like Matthew 25, 41 to 43, it's a little frightening. And it should be. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, to the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. We read this passage and passages like it, and we think to ourselves, well, who really is good enough? Who really can match up to this? And we have good reason to fear. But again, it is the grace of God that takes fear in the sense of terror and turns it into something good, into something beautiful. We Fear God. We fear the exalted Christ when we read about judgment like that. But then by the grace of God, that fear doesn't become a a terror that paralyzes us or drives us to become legalists, saying, well, I'll just keep this one rule and everything will be good. Or a terror that drives us into antinomianism. Saying, well, God doesn't really care if I keep the rules or not. The fear of God does a wonderful work of us through the grace of God. And with the passage of time, we find ourselves more and more doing what Jesus wants us to do. The fear of God is not a bad thing. Just think about what the Bible has to say on the topic. Let me give you a quick tour of what the Bible says about the fear of God. First, it is something that evil people lack. Evil people lack the fear of God. Psalm 36.1 says, A message within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The fear of God is also pure, and it is always right. It's always good to have the fear of God. Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The fear of God is what we should teach our children. Psalm 34.11 says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of God. Of the Lord. The fear of God guides us into true wisdom. Job 28 28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and understanding. The fear of God enables us to be humble in our dealings with one another. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another in the fear of God. And finally, the fear of God guides us into holiness. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And Philippians 2.12 says, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So again, it's not that it's a good thing to be terrified, to be panic-stricken, to be paralyzed. But if you have the grace of God, you can also fear God. And in that fear, become holy. Well, our passage goes on to its second command, which is to love one another in verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, this is the second real command of this passage. The first is that we should have the fear of God. The second is that we should love one another deeply. And once again, the passage gives us reasons to do so. Notice it says we are sanctified by obeying the truth. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. Peter does not say in verse 22, because you have believed the truth. He says, because you have obeyed the truth. What does that mean? Well, to obey the truth, of course, involves believing it, but it also means Submitting to what it says. It tells you who you are, a sinner. It tells you that you need God. And to obey the truth is to turn to God in repentance, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging you need salvation, and clinging to him and him alone for forgiveness of sins. The passage then goes on in verse 23 and says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now, of course, born of perishable seed, that's basically what we are as mortal human beings. We are people of flesh and blood. We are mortals. We will die. And we give birth to children who are flesh and blood who are mortal and who will die. Our regeneration, our new birth, verse 23 tells us, is by something that does not die, something that is imperishable, the living and enduring word of God. Now, the command here is that we should love one another. Well, you know, no one can truly love who is dead on the inside. If on the inside you're filled with misery, with guilt, with anger, with fury at everything that's happened to you, with sadness, with regrets, if that's you, you can't love. You have no life in you. But the living and enduring word of God, when it comes into your heart, when the grace of God grants you regeneration, a new birth, it enables you to have an enduring life, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what your past is. And out of that regeneration, you can love. Now, why is loving one another so important? 
Well, loving one another in this passage really think is a kind of shorthand for a life of grace. God forgave you, so be forgiving to others. God is patient with you, so be patient with others. God loves you, so love others. As God has done for you, so you do for others. The real marks of a person who knows God is not just living a basic moral life, so that's important. It's not just keeping a set of rules. The real mark of knowing God is grace in your life that pours out to other people. That's how you really show in the words of those Puritan forefathers, that you have an interest in Christ. You know, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives that frightening command. He speaks of how um, we we ask God to forgive us as we have forgiven one another. And he says, for if you do not forgive each other, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Again, a frightening statement. But if you have the grace of God, and the grace of God is flowing up out of your life, the proof of it, the indisputable evidence that you really have been born again by the living word of God is that you know how to forgive. You know how to be kind. You know how to be patient. You know how to be generous. You know how to give of yourself because you have received so much. So in this passage, we have a stern warning from Peter. And the passage really applies to people in 21st century American Christianity who really are much more inclined to be antinomian than they are inclined to be legalist. And the warning is God did not save you so that you can be ungodly. God saved you so that you can be godly and loving and kind and virtuous. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the grace of God that is shown in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we will walk in it and will live in it. And each day that you will... Make us a little stronger, draw us a little closer, make us to be more like Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson and that it spoke to you. If you have prayer needs or want more information about us, we invite you to stop by our website, mywrbc.org, and click on Contact. Please use the word podcast in the subject line. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keyword, MyWRBC. At Westport Road Baptist Church, we love God and love people. Please join us for Sunday morning service at either 9.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. We also have Sunday school for all ages during both service times. Thanks again for listening, and join us next week for another message from God's Word. Thank you.